Adam, what is that? Don't mind me. Just finishing off my first homemade mask. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Howdy my. Welcome, this is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Wednesday the 26th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the general election, and then we slow things down and focus on one particular topic. And today, it seems it's sewing. There are 52 days till the election. Uh, before we go on, I think you owe us an explanation there, Adam. Have you opened up a mask switch shop over there on the shore or something? Well, something I haven't told you about me, Eugene, is that one of the highlights of my academic career was informed to sewing when I sewed not just a fully functional blue kimono, but also a kind of backpack using denim recycled from one of my sister's dresses. <laughs> okay. Uh, my sewing career then went on furlough for several decades. But last week, when it became clear that New Zealand was going to become a mask-wearing nation... I had a sudden rush of blood to the head and bought myself the second cheapest sewing machine on the Spotlight website. It's a singer, and apart from needing glasses to thread the needle, it was just like old times. Mm. And, well, I've made my first DIY anti-COVID face mask. It's floral on the outside, seeing it's getting near spring, and black on the inside, like my soul. Brilliant. Does it work? No, it's dreadful. It's too oh. big at the front, too tight at the back, can't really breathe very well because the fabric's too tightly woven, and it steams up my glasses. My Form 2 sewing teacher would be most disappointed in me. Are you taking it for a spin to the supermarket or anything? Anywhere exciting? No. Just uh, just for homeware so far. I think outdoor excursions can wait until version 2. It's going to be much better. Look, I wore my cactus one. It's, it's not covered in cactus patterns or anything, by the way. It's just made by a Kiwi company called Cactus. Anyway... I wore it out and about at the weekend a couple of times, once to the supermarket and once to pick up some takeaways. At the supermarket, I'd say there was like 90-ish percent mask compliance. Well, it's not compliance, is it? Because it's not a rule, but 90-ish percent people wearing masks. But while I was standing around waiting for the contactless pickup of the takeaways, I did feel pretty conspicuous because apart from the people in the shop, there was only one other person wearing a mask and suddenly I felt really self-conscious. Yeah, I'm not sure if New Zealand has quite learnt to love the mask yet. I've been wearing one at the supermarket, not my homemade one, you know, one of those white plasticky ones from the packet that make your face all sweaty. But anyway, and I've been umming and ahhing about whether it's really necessary to wear a mask on my early morning runs through near-empty suburban streets. But look, this is a politics podcast, not a coronavirus podcast. Perhaps we should stop gibbering on about masks. Well, maybe, but everything is political at the moment, and that includes the announcement that mask wearing will be compulsory on public transport and taxis and planes and things from next Monday, when we're all at level two. And later in the show, we talk to Dr Elspeth Tilly, who has had a look at the morality of mask wearing, and we ask her, wouldn't it just make it easier for everyone if the government simply made masks compulsory everywhere? But before we get to that, Eugene, what's been happening? Well, Adam, as we alluded to, big COVID announcements on Monday. And in case you haven't caught them, Auckland is to stay at alert level 3 until 11.59 on Sunday and then move to alert level 2, like the rest of the country. Everyone, the reunited country, will then stay at alert level 2 until Sunday, September the 6th. We'll talk about the politics of that decision soon. But what we learned yesterday at the 1pm briefing is that there were seven new cases all connected to the cluster. And we also now know that it's the biggest coronavirus cluster we've had. 
National has described Chris Hipkins as a part-time health minister. Remember, he is the Education Minister and State Services Minister as well, and the Leader of the House. National Leader Judith Collins made the comment in a swipe at Hipkins for failing to keep her health spokesperson, Dr Shane Retty, up to date with promised briefings. National has also been putting pressure on the government to reconvene the special parliamentary committee that sat during the first lockdown to enable MPs to scrutinise officials and ministers. Remember, that was the thing that popped up back when Simon Bridges was still national leader and there were those giant public Zoom webinars where they critiqued government policy. Anyway, Labour has resisted this, but yesterday its coalition partner, New Zealand First, chipped in and said, yeah, we agree, there should be a committee. That super busy health minister, he announced a massive testing program yesterday. Over the next seven days, they want to test 70,000 people. For those of you looking for a bit of math schooling, how many tests a day is that? If you answered 10,000, you're correct. Anyway, the Blitz will cover the routine tests, suspected cases, close contacts, and the minister emphasised border and quarantine staff. I hope you got it right, Adam. As well as some asymptomatic testing to see if they can find traces of the disease hidden in the community. Remember last time there were pop-up testing stations outside supermarkets and things. It will be similar this time, but a particular focus will be on Auckland. So, coronavirus continues to dominate the political landscape, of course. The Prime Minister's announcement on Monday about the extension of Alert Level 3... In Auckland. ...and to... ..rest of the country. ..set the scene for the week and became the gruel, really, of morning radio and TV breakfast shows yesterday. Commentators chipped in with their thoughts. Auckland Mayor Phil Goff said his heart went out to the small business owners. Some economists described the continuation of Alert Level 2 for non-Auckland New Zealand as overly cautious. Public health experts backed the announcement... But where it got really interesting was the politics. You had Act Leader David Seymour pulling back from saying the decision was wrong, but being critical of the messaging. He said the Prime Minister sounded like she was talking to children when describing the trickiness of the virus's spread. Quote, no one has talked to me like that since I was at Hora Hora Kindy in 1987. It's trickiness to blame? Give us a break. Close quotes. Which, by the way, it struck me as a comment which displayed a remarkable memory and... He was in kindy in 1987? Oh, wow, I feel old. The Greens co-leader, Marama Davidson, said the extended lockdown in Auckland gave the country the best chance of beating the current outbreak, and she acknowledged the sacrifices people were making. And then there was the national leader, Judith Collins. On Monday night after the announcement, she was not directly critical of the decision. I mean, the National Party has learned at its cost that directly attacking the government's COVID decisions doesn't play very well. So instead, she took an approach I don't think we've seen from previous leaders. She kind of stayed neutral and pushed all the attention back to Jacinda Ardern. She said, We have to trust the Prime Minister has made the right decision based on the information she has got. And? It's not for us to call it. We don't have the information. So she's saying, I can't comment when I don't have the full facts. That's true. But it's also a tactical thing. Collins is saying, hey, Ardern has the info and the responsibility here, so who am I to judge? But equally, there's this implication that if it all goes horribly wrong, or if you're feeling angry about the lockdown, that's on Ardern too. What happened yesterday morning just took it a little bit further. When she went on News Talk ZB with Mike Hosking, there was a growing anger, she said, that people have not been told the full truth. So Collins's response to the extension has moved from, don't know, to a suggestion that we're not being told something. There's political tightrope walking going on by everyone. 
So what are the politics of the lockdown decisions, especially in an election campaign? We're joined by Tick Tick regular and Stuff senior journalist Andrea Vance, who has been bringing us the party political leader interviews. Welcome, Andrea. Hello, how are you guys trucking on in Auckland? Yeah, yeah, very well. A little bit longer in lockdown level three. Hey, <laughs> we'll survive. Hey, there are a bunch <laughs> of factors the Prime Minister takes into account in making these decisions, the science, the economics, the human psychology, but how big a part in these decisions does politics play? I think it's a fair to say, as you, as you did, it's fair to say it's a combination, but of course she's a politician, it's election year. <laughs> she's not going to do anything that's going to hurt her chances. I mean, not to be too cynical about it, those are just the, those are just the realities, those are just you know, all the the circumstances with which she's dealing. And I think if she materially thought that locking down Auckland for much longer was going to harm her chances of winning the election, she probably would have found a different path. But luckily, it seems like public opinion is still in her favour. Mm. How big a call was it in the end, do you think? I th- well, I mean, I think from the perspective of the people who are really suffering, you know, those one in five businesses that are on the brink of uh, collapse if there's another lockdown, those people who are dealing in hospitality, who are dealing with another potentially weekend of no takings. It's a huge call. In terms of the decision she's making, I suppose the evidence pointed her in the direction that it wasn't such a big leap to ask people to extend for that longer, given the given the sacrifices that people had already made, given that it was just a few extra days for potentially a very, very long-term goal, you know, the, probably the decision almost made itself. Mm. The other thing is there's been criticism of the Prime Minister that our announcements are starting to border on electioneering. Is that fair, do you think? I mean, personally, I, th- I think it, it is fair. Um, I think especially as we grow ever closer to the election, I think everyone has to be really um, mindful of that. I f- personally find yesterday's announcement excruciating. I, I just I just wanted the cold, hard facts. I, I, I know it's been a tough year, you know. I know it's really awful and, I, and that businesses are struggling. I don't think it helps to talk down to them or to patronise them. No one knows better than they do the pain and suffering. Uh, you know, potentially of this lockdown and future ones, I just think it would have been a, a much better for all of us had she just immediately got to the facts and laid out the reasons for it. Because I actually thought yesterday was probably one of her worst performances in terms of mm-hmm. I didn't think what she was asking people to do and the extra steps that were being laid out, the new rules, the new protocols. I didn't think any of that was particularly clear. I think by the time she got round to explaining it, she'd pretty much lost everyone. Right. I was wondering if that style she's developed for these announcements, which is a whole pile of context, a laying out of you know a brief history of the of the universe and and the virus, and a, a restatement of where we are and where we came from and where we're going, and then finally getting to the answer. It sort of reminded me sometimes of the structure of a judge's summation of a trial. You know, they sort of say with this understanding that the the defendant did this and that the the situation was that these are my reasons, blah 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 blah, and then finally get to the point. Is I mean, is that fair? And is uh, that seems a reasonably reasonable way of setting the table. Also, everyone's going to walk away the moment they hear the the other bit. So this is to make sure that people listen, isn't it? Well, yeah, I I get I understand that. And if she was laying out the laying out the the facts and the the reasons that led her to make that decision, and those 
uh, those things only, then absolutely fine. But bearing in mind that two hours prior to the briefing yesterday, we'd already had the 1pm briefing. We'd already had a lot of the information laid out to us. And what sure. she did what she did yesterday was a speech. It wasn't necessary to tell us all what a hard year we were having. It's not necessary mm. to, to to sugarcoat these things in emotion. I don't often agree with David Seymour, but I, I do think that his comments about being talked down to, I think we're, we're somewhat on the money. We're all adults. We've been going through this for most of the year. Just give us the cold hard facts you don't need to baby us through it there's certainly a a dominic bowden and his x-factor day style of of drawing things out going on (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah all right thank you very much andrea thank you okay time for our occasional series i did not know that new zealand political trivia Let's start here. Eugene, which famous New Zealand politics-related building was described in a top 10 ugliest buildings list online as looking like a slide projector that fell on a wedding cake that fell on a water wheel? Uh, Well, to be honest, I'm struggling to conjure up what that image is, but I can't think of many politics-related buildings that fit that kind of description, so I'm going to have to say the beehive. Correct, the Beehive, the executive wing of New Zealand's Parliament buildings in Wellington, the big round thing that's featured on the $20 bill. And I know that you were once a parliamentary reporter, Eugene, so you've actually hung out in the Beehive. So I'm possibly going to struggle to find something about it that you did not know, but I'm going to try anyway. So we'll start with the design. So you know who designed it, right? Yeah, Sir Basil Spence. So he was a British architect and I think he was like knighted for his involvement in the post-war rebuild or something. That's correct. Uh, correct again. Yeah, he designed the new Coventry Cathedral, which they sort of kept some of the old ruins and built a new bit on, and he became a sir. Yeah, so Sir Basil came up with the concept for the Beehive in 1964, and the concept being that it would be a circular building that rose in steps with each successive floor. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue making it circular was not an entirely clever idea. The lifts are all kind of around the edge of the circle, and there's this lobby in the centre of each floor. So my abiding memory of the beehive is A, small lifts, and B, that there's always this crowd of disorientated people in the middle of each floor's lobby, sort of consulting compasses and looking to see where the sun sets and asking for directions because they don't have a clue which direction they've ended up facing. It's quite weird. Good to know. But do you know what materials Sir Basil supposedly used to come up with that design? I'm going to take a guess on this one. Pen and paper. Well, I guess it's technically right. Legend has it that he sketched out the shape on the back of a napkin over lunch. But the finer details of where the doors and windows went, the shape of the door frames, all that stuff was left to New Zealand's government architect, a bloke called Fergus Shepherd. Anyway, they started building it in 1969, finished it in 1981, and there you have it, a big, confusing circular building in the shape of a beehive. Well, you say that, but I've seen lots of beehives in my time, and they're usually squarish, sort of a rectangle box, not an upside-down wicker basket. Well, that's because you clearly haven't spent enough time in medieval Europe, where there were lots of beehives in that shape. The technical name for their type is skep, from the Old Norse skepa, which means basket. And some beekeepers still use them, actually, but they're a bit of a nightmare because you can't just open a lid to check on the health of your bees, and removing the honey usually involves destroying the entire colony. That's quite a flaw. Actually, I've just realised where I have seen that beehive shape. It's basically the logo for the beehive brand of safety matches, isn't it? Indeed it is. And now we're finally at the bit that I'm really hopeful you won't know. So Beehive are a New Zealand brand that launched in the 1930s, which used to be made locally and sort of owned by the British company Bryant and May. 
But since then, the brand has been swallowed up by a big international mattress conglomerate, and they are made in, drumroll please, Sweden. I did not know that. And a nice little COVID connection too. (laughs) Right, on with the show. Dr Elspeth Tilly is an Associate Professor of English at Massey University who has written extensively about ethics and has served as a member of the Tertiary Ethics Committee. So she thinks about ethics a lot. And when COVID-19 came along and the science around mask wearing developed, she couldn't help but think about the morality of mask wearing and what ethical tools she could use to come to a decision about whether to wear a face covering. She wrote a piece about this for The Conversation last week. And since then, of course, there's been an announcement from the government making masks mandatory on public transport, planes and taxis. So how does that change your thinking? Here's Dr. Elspeth Tilley. Hi, Elspeth. Kia ora. Not wanting to ruin the suspense in this interview, but you've obviously decided that wearing masks when out and about is the right thing to do. So tell us, what kind of mask do you wear? So today I actually have a colour matching mask to my outfit, which was unintentional, but I'm rather proud of it. So this is a homemade mask. It's made from a sock. Um, They're pretty simple and easy and cheap to do. And you can have a lot of them because they're not expensive and then you can just throw them in the wash. I read about having two plastic bags or two actually fabric bags I've got in my handbag and you have the one where you've got your clean mask and then if you do accidentally touch it wrong, you can just put it in the dirty mask bag and um, get a clean one out and hold it in the right place and put it on in the right way. And so I'm starting to teach myself slowly but surely to um, remember those things and um, practice them and just make it a part of the daily routine, really. Back to the beginning. So just over a week ago, you wrote a piece which picked apart the ethics and, and morality, I guess, of mask wearing in the New Zealand context in the middle of a pandemic. Can you, before we get to the details of the the ethics, can you explain why mask wearing even counts as an ethical decision? I mean, most of the choices we make about what to wear aren't about ethics, are they? True. It is an ethical decision because it impacts on other people. It's, you know, when I decide to wear a stripy dress, it's not going to impact on anybody. But when I decide to wear or not wear the stripy mask that goes with it, that's actually going to reach out and have consequences way beyond me. That makes it an ethical decision. Right. And so for things to be ethical, there's that vital part of it involves someone other than just yourself. Is that sort of the, the decisive factor? What actually made me decide to write for the conversation was because I was grappling with what was right in my mind. So the fact that I was toing and froing or unsure alerted me to the fact that there were probably some values and maybe even some conflicting values involved. And so that made me realise I had to think about it more and that it did have ethical dimensions. That's That sense of uncertainty or discomfort or inner conflict. Mm, right. Okay. So before we get to the details of what the decisions you made were and how, can you give us the, I guess, the theory, get out the textbook. You wrote that there are three broad classes of ethical decision making. So can you briefly outline what those are and maybe with a a tiny example of each? Sure. So this is a massive oversimplification of 2000 plus years of ethical theory. And one of the things I love about as soon as you start talking about ethics, you open up this 
wonderful, rich can of worms. But we have to start somewhere with thinking about it. And I think the three schools of thought are a way in and they are usually referred to as virtue ethics, deontological ethics and consequential ethics. So virtue ethics is thinking about what's important to us, what our values are, what kind of person we want to be seen as um, in public, our public persona. Um, deontological ethics is broadening that out a little bit from the individual and and who am I and and do I think I'm a good person myself? Um, deontology takes it out to I'm a member of a lot of different groups. So I'm a member of a workplace. I'm a member of New Zealand's community. Um, if I hop on a bus, I'm a member of that bus catching group. What are my duties to those people? In many of those situations, there'll actually be some kind of a guideline or a rule that's been agreed to by that group in order for me to be part of that group. And I have a duty to abide by that rule or choose not to be part of that group. If I don't want to wear a mask, for example, it's perfectly okay for me to decide I'm not going to catch the bus because that's a part of that group membership that I'm not comfortable with. There's more complexities with that, obviously, but at a very blunt level. And then uh, last but not least is consequentialism. So that's thinking about the broadest impacts on other people. And we might even expand that out to what are the environmental impacts or the future generation impacts of an action. But it's thinking about the outcomes and how they may affect other people with either benefit or harm. Right. So those are the three toolkits you can throw at an ethical decision. But can you briefly explain how they specifically guided you to your decision to wear a mask? I think, interestingly enough, that actually the virtue ethics one was the most useful. So the outcomes, once I wrote them all down for mask wearing, were pretty obvious. If I want to reduce harm, I need to wear a mask. So that was fairly simple. Um, The deontology was already even at that level reasonably simple in that there were some clear public health guidelines for the situations in which we should be wearing a mask. and But then when I started to delve into my values, that was what really gave me some self-knowledge, some insight into the fact that I was actually allowing my sense of embarrassment to be a value in my decision-making. But it wasn't until I wrote it down that I realised that, oh, I'm, I'm cringing at myself because I don't like the way I look in this mask or I don't like the way other people are looking at it. So I'm not claiming I'm a super ethical person. I'm just glad that I have the equipment to be conscious of what values are in my ethical decision making rather than unconscious. So it's more about just making an examined decision than saying, well, this is the right decision. It's it's only the right decision for me. And it's only the right decision for me because I at least examined what was functioning in that decision. Mm. Now, you wrote your piece a week ago, but now the rules have, have changed from next Monday when all of us, the whole country is at level two, mask wearing will be mandatory on public transport. How does this change the ethics of mask wearing? It makes it a little bit easier, to be honest, because um, now we have that deontological clear prescription for if you want to be a member of a particular group of people, this is what's been agreed, that is to the benefit of that entire group. So it kind of takes that 
question about deontology um, out of the equation, and then you can just focus on clarifying what are your values and what are the outcomes. And if you have any uncertainty about those, you can work it through, think about who's affected, think about what your options are, and, and come to that reasoned decision rather than going there's maybe you're an emotional reaction or a gut instinct. I was interested when you said uh, that you, you realised that embarrassment was was something that you were weighing up and measuring. And I can think of other reasons that don't feel particularly noble, like, you know, I've found wearing wearing a mask recently, they get hot and sweaty, they're not particularly comfortable, and my glasses steam up. And arguably they make me look silly as well. And there's that social thing of, I'm on the beach and no one else is wearing one, so should I. So can you just sort of clarify these non-noble considerations? Are they still sort of ethical considerations or are they a different kind of thing? You know, do they fit inside your formula for figuring out or not? Well, interestingly, ethics doesn't um, say that, you know, your value is less important than my value. It just asks us to array all the values and weigh them up. And, you know, there can be really important reasons why some people may not be able to wear a mask. So I'm aware of people who actually have genuine trauma from having their face covered and some people who have breathing difficulty and it's um, very difficult for them to breathe with a mask on. And those are really valid considerations, which is why the deontological approach has to also think about exemptions and work through the fact that everybody's different and what works for one person may not work for another. So I understand that's why there's seven days being taken to think through all of the possible permutations of outcomes on different kinds of people in different situations and come up with possible exemptions and ways of managing that. Mm. Which kind of comes to the point of we've been talking about ethics at a, at a personal level. I should do this because it's a good thing when you weigh it all up. But also there's ethics at a policy level, which inform the decisions that are made by people like Ashley Bloomfield and Jacinda Ardern when setting the rules. So should they be using the same ethical toolkits as ordinary people in making those decisions? I'm, I'm pretty sure they probably do. Uh, they seem to take a, a wide array of advice and they seem to take time to weigh it up. So there's obviously a fairly considered, not a knee-jerk reaction going on there. And we can see that through the transparency of the time being taken and the, the number of experts that they consult. And they consult globally as well as nationally. I'm not obviously privy to those decisions, but I do know that if you want to make a law that is acceptable to people, you have to think really carefully about the values of the group that you're making that policy or that law for. So even in a workplace situation, one of the number one reasons why people get burnout in organisations is a value mismatch between their personal values and the organisation's policy values. And uh, they're unable to work there after a certain amount of time because that daily conflict between what they believe is important and what the organisation believes in impo- is important erodes their trust, it erodes their ability to work there. So on a national scale, we also need to have laws that are going to align with um, what ethicists call overlapping consensus. So it doesn't mean that every single person in the country will be able to see their values reflected in that law in the same way, but it means that there will be enough people who can see something that they think is important in that 
policy that they can give it legitimacy because they can see a reason for following it rather than disobeying it. So if you do that work to think about the value of the policy that you're making, as well as those bigger picture things like how can we make the most number of people happy and reduce harm for the most number of people, you're going to be more likely to make a policy that people will accept as legitimate and will follow. Because mm. I keep thinking about masks in the context of seatbelts and the same sort of uh, process of, well, there's this thing that makes us safer. And I keep thinking, wouldn't it just make it so much easier and make it better for overall for public health if the rulemakers made masks mandatory for everyone, everywhere, just like seatbelts, and we, the mask-wearing public, would be spared the sort of cognitive load of having to even think about it? Change is always difficult for people. The seatbelt adoption didn't happen overnight either. Mm. There's a big impetus here for everybody to change, but there will still be people for whom they have a very sincerely held personal belief that this doesn't align with their values. So change takes time and it takes thinking about how to connect with those people where they're at. It takes good communication and it takes recognising that everybody's on a journey of responding in difficult circumstances. So a lot of the change making around policy is about that communication process as well. It's about understanding where people are at and trying to connect with them where they're at and then bring them on board to see the bigger picture of the overall benefit, harm reduction, the fact in, in terms of masks that it may mean that we can avoid going back into level three. Those kinds of bigger pictures need to be communicated about really clearly. So it's bringing, bringing people with you rather than sort of enforcing something in an iron-fisted way? Well, as um, people have pointed out in terms of deontology, sometimes you actually get laws that are unjust. If you lived in a totalitarian state and or underneath a dictator, just because somebody makes a law doesn't necessarily make it ethical mm. and doesn't mean that it will align with the values of the people. So you are never going to please all of the people all of the time with your policy making. But if you have thought about the values of New Zealanders and thought about things like kindness or practicality, pragmatism, that probably very few people could say, well, no, I don't want to be a kind person or no, I don't want to be a practical person. You're more likely to be able to connect with people where they are and earn legitimacy for that policy. It's interesting you're saying about the laws not necessarily being just. It just made me think while we look at uh, a lot of the, the anti-mask wearing crowd in the US and my inclination is to think that they're idiots, but in fact, a lot of them are really talking about a strongly values-based ethical decision, which is tyranny by the state is something which is so bad that I'm willing to risk not wearing a mask because that is a value that I value more highly than some of these other values. So Perhaps I shouldn't, I mean, I still disagree with them, but perhaps I shouldn't feel quite so sneery about them. And we're not going to convince people to change a really strongly held value. Um, the more dogmatic a person is in their value, the more you push them with your uh, your value, the more you get what's called the boomerang effect, which actually just deepens their commitment to their sincerely held personal value that to them is the ethical um, decision. To them, it is individual rights are really, really important. 
So we do have to find ways to find that common ground in the middle if we want to bring people across to seeing that there are a diversity of values and that values are only part of this ethical decision-making, that there are also things like the outcomes, how many people will die if if everybody refuses to wear a mask, those kinds of consequentialist decisions uh, um, aspects are also really important parts of that decision. So that's why I always say you can't just do one test in terms of ethics because each test you run will probably give you different answers. Mm. I, I was actually surprised when I ran my um, mask wearing test myself because all three gave me the same answer. And that's actually reasonably rare. Mm. It's a fascinating area, isn't it? And um, so thank you. And actually just thinking about it, masks are going to become part of our regular wardrobe for a fair while to come, which then throws up a whole lot of other ethical problems, like is my mask maker getting a fair wage? Is Was any child labour involved? Am I encouraging plastic production if I've got one of those surgical type masks? Holy moly, <laughs> this is an ethical vortex. So um, there's a, a really wonderful ethicist that um, I find extremely useful and her name is Nancy Fraser and she writes about frame setting when we're thinking about consequences and you know the, the frame setting can go on forever. You could look at how many generations into the future will this one decision impact and you would freeze yourself up so she says it, it's not about having no frame for the consequences. It's about being conscious of your frame. And, and this can vary by culture. So, for example, Confucian ethics, your frame is quite firmly around your family. That's a simplification, but in a general sense, um, in any kind of collectivist culture, your frame might be around your wider family group. So we we can't necessarily adjust our frame right out to take in the consequences for everybody, but at least if we map out who might be impacted, we can say, okay, I'm going to make a conscious decision that here's where I set my frame and here's what I can care about for this decision and here's what is most important right now. And maybe right now I'm going to make this decision that in terms of the mask that I can afford, um, this is the one. It is going to um, save us from going back into lockdown again, um, but I might be trading off something else against that. But you're not doing it blindly. You've, uh -huh. you've thought about it and you've made that decision and become aware. And then maybe you, the next ones you buy can be more sustainable. Dr. Elspeth Tilly, Adam and I are going to get out your toolkit and sit down and figure out our positions. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was the Tick Tick podcast for Wednesday, the 26th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Andrea Vance, Elspeth Tilly, Catherine George, Patrick Coots, and John Hartfield, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We will be back on Saturday. Matewa.